0: Welcome to the pod i'm steve jacobs a senior associate at herbert smith freehills and host of the betters verdict podcast here with me today is jonathan cross a partner in the firm and host of the designated podcast on sanctions jonathan welcome welcome uh, good morning so we're here today to talk about a recent designation by ofac of tornado cash jonathan why don't you start with what did ofac do here
1: Well, on on August 8th, OFAC blocked, in other words, designated as a specially designated national, what OFAC referred to as an entity known as Tornado Cash.
0: Maybe an entity. (laughs) I'm sorry? As we'll get to later, maybe an entity, maybe something else.
1: So the designation announcement states that Tornado Cash is an entity which is or operates a crypto mixer service, and this mixer service, uh, the the announcement states, uh, enables users of crypto to obscure the crypto addresses associated with particular transactions, uh, so that transactions can be conducted untraceably uh, and in a way that can't be determined uh, by by looking at the public blockchain. The the announcement states that, in OFAC's view, Tornado Cash has been involved in at least $7 billion in alleged money laundering and and processing of the proceeds of criminal activity. And in particular, that Tornado Cash was utilized by a North Korean hacker group known as the Lazarus Group to process several hundred million dollars in proceeds of an infamous uh, cyber attack. Um, and so the announcement details uh, the various ways in which, uh, in OFAC's view, Tornado Cash has been used by uh, cybercrime groups and other criminal organizations to um, to engage in money laundering. And so accordingly, the announcement states that all property and interests uh, an interest in property of Tornado Cash are blocked to the extent that they're in the U.S. or under the custody or control of any U.S. person. Um... And in addition, OFAC blocked a number of uh, virtual wallet addresses associated with Tornado Cash. Uh, the announcement notes that the, the Tornado Cache is just the most recent blender to be to be designated as an SDN, um, and uh, points also to an earlier designation of a blender known as Blender IO. Um, and so, uh, facially, it seems like a relatively straightforward designation of an entity that is operating a blender service that's been used by criminals.
0: So, it, facially, yes, but it's a particularly interesting case because of what Tornado Cash is, or at least what it seems that it is. There appears to be a disagreement about what Tornado Cash fundamentally is, right, Jonathan? As you just said, the designation says that it is an entity, some sort of criminal entity. But proponents of Tornado Cash would say that it consists of merely open source software code. It's just software on the Ethereum blockchain designed to anonymize transactions. Let me just take a step back and give our listeners some background here. Ethereum is a form of cryptocurrency. Users of Ethereum have wallets that generate addresses for the user to send and receive cryptocurrency and a smart key that functions like a password. For those wallets users can send and receive ether the cryptocurrency without any any intermediary like other cryptocurrencies as with other blockchains there's transparency that allows for verification of transactions on the blockchain the flip side of that is that transparency makes protecting the privacy of users difficult so tornado cash as you mentioned jonathan and as the name implies is a crypto tumbler or blender Crypto goes in from all sorts of sources, it gets all mixed up in the blender, in the Tumblr, and out comes more anonymized crypto. So users of Ethereum that want to anonymize their transactions for a whole host of reasons might use it. More specifically, it's decentralized open source software that's been published as a collection of smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain. So what is a smart contract? It is a program on the blockchain that automatically runs without any human intervention when certain conditions are met. Public addresses any user can interact with, automatically set to carry out predetermined tasks. Now, certain tornado cash smart contracts are called the pools, which these pools are essentially the tumblers where users send ether into these pools, into these smart contracts. They're held in a smart wallet that is not controlled by any individual, but is controlled by the Tornado Cache smart contract. And then the user is given a secret code that can send the ether back out after it's been blended to any address of the user's choosing. So, sort of as the name Tornado Cache implies, all of the cache is thrown together in a tornado, and out it comes. So this sanctioning or designating rather of a piece of software is fairly unusual right Jonathan
1: well i think how unusual it is depends on on how tornado cash functions and, I, and and it seems to it, it seems to me that there's there's some empirical dispute about that or might be so l- let me ask a question let's say i wanted to use tornado Cache, hypothetically before it were designated to to pay $1,000 to you. Can you describe for our audience the the mechanics of how that transaction would work typically?
0: Sure, so the the fundamental issue here is many Ethereum addresses, wallet addresses that is, are publicly identifiable as certain people's Ethereum wallet. So for example, Jonathan, you have a podcast, you maybe are a semi-public figure, and maybe you promote your Ethereum address on Twitter or the like, and you want to send Ethereum from there to me. But for whatever reason, you want to anonymize it. You don't want everyone in the world from being able to see that it came from Jonathan's Ethereum address. So what you would do is you would send it to one of the tornado cash pool addresses. It would then go into the smart contract that would be sent to the smart wallet, and you would receive a code that you could input whenever you wanted, whenever you wanted the transaction to go through. And then, it would, then you would put in my address or any Ethereum wallet address that I give you that I say I control. And essentially, you would then tell the pool using the code to send it out to that address. And it would then not be identifiable as having come from your public address, but from some other... Random address that wouldn't be traceable.
1: Right. But 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 maybe by by varying the facts slightly, we can see easily why the Treasury Department might be hostile to this type of mechanism. Right. I mean, let's say you wanted to uh, pay an illegal bribe to someone. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't want there to be any record that the funds paid to a foreign public official were paid to an address associated with that official or came from you. And so right. a service like this would would be very useful to you in that situation.
0: Agreed. So let's just back up for a second. What would be the normal traditional ambit of sanctions powers?
1: Well, I want to maybe even back up one further step, okay? On a policy level, why is the Treasury Department somewhat hostile to this type of mechanism? Well, Because what you've described is fundamentally incompatible with the basic architecture of uh, AML monitoring that has been established beginning with the Bank Secrecy Act in the 1970s. The operative principles of which are that financial intermediaries should have an obligation to police transactions for signs of possible illegality or criminality. And proactively and confidentially report those circumstances to regulators in order to prevent the financial system from being used to process illicit payments. And so this is all, I think, fundamentally a potential workaround to the regulated financial system where banks file suspicious activity reports, etc. And that type of mechanism has been replicated you know beyond the us and a whole variety of foreign jurisdictions and so if we want to understand the basic tension between crypto and regulatory authorities that's largely
0: it right i was about to say you could you could say this is a tension with all cryptocurrency
1: right but a blender or mixer service that is intended to obscure the source of funds would you know be maybe the most obvious place where that tension would come up right so now we are, we're witnessing a use of sanctions authority to, to sort of address that emergence of workarounds to the traditional financial system. Um, and so the traditional scope of sanctions authority comes into play. Now, typically, but not exclusively, and I'll get to that in a moment, what does OFAC do? Well, it designates persons pursuant to an executive order issued by the president Uh, and blocks all property and interest in property of those persons, which may be in the United States or under the custody or control of a U.S. person. And in practice, that also means it's against the law and a crime for U.S. persons to conduct any type of economic or business activity with the designated person or for the benefit of the designated person. Now, what is the legal basis for that action? it is taken under the authority of the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. And this is an extremely broad statute which authorizes the president to declare uh, a national emergency. And on the basis of that emergency declaration to to issue an executive order uh, restricting international economic activity in a very broad variety of ways to address the emergency. And so the, the legal uh, chain of authority is AIPA, declaration of emergency, executive order on the basis of the emergency. And the executive order typically will say the secretary of the treasury shall or may designate persons who have done the following objectionable thing, persons who are destabilizing democratic processes in a foreign country or, or who are engaged in the international narcotics trade or who are materially assisting some military action we don't like. Uh, And the Secretary of the Treasury is told, you may shall block these persons and all of their property and interest in property.
0: So, So there's a necessary, there's first a necessary emergency and then a necessary executive order to respond to that emergency before we get to sanctions. Is that right?
1: Yes. Okay. So paradigmatically, there's a terrorist attack. There's an emergency declared on the basis of the attack. The president says, you, Treasury Secretary, go block the property and interest in property of the terrorists and anyone who you find materially aided or assisted the terrorists, for example. And so then OFAC issues a, an SDN designation, which says, you, we find, are a terrorist under this executive order, and we hereby block your property and interest in property. So that's the standard I would say architecture of list based blocking sanctions, and what ofac has said it's doing here with tornado cash is to impose list based blocking sanctions
0: um, yeah so let's so let's let's talk about that a little more. What is happening here? What is the executive order, and what is the emergency that led to blocking tornado cash? Um, which it describes as an entity.
1: Okay, so the executive order is Executive Order 13694 issued by President Obama in 2015 on the basis of a declared cybersecurity emergency. And the executive order uh, authorizes the designation by the Treasury Secretary of Persons involved in uh, particular uh, actions which involve conducting or facilitating cybercrime. And the uh, cybercrime regulations then define, uh, so a person is defined as an individual or an entity.
0: Uh, So whether Tornado Cash is a person, i.e. an individual or, or an entity, is a key consideration here.
1: Yes, under the executive order, which is the basis for the designation, Treasury is authorized to block the property of persons, meaning individuals or entities. Um, an entity is defined, however, quite broadly uh, in the regulations as a partnership, association, trust, joint venture, corporation, group, subgroup, or other organization. And so it's important here that, consistent with historical practice, OFAC can absolutely designate informal groups. Uh, is not required to limit its 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 activity to you know corporations and entities having some sort of licit, uh formal existence and so you know a drug cartel or or, or a gang can can and, and frequently has been designated.
0: Would a de- designation be open ended? For example, could it be anyone that sends Ethereum to Tornado Cash is hereby designated? Would that qualify as a gr- reasonable group for? under this definition?
1: Sending Ethereum to Tornado Cash might be a viable basis for designation, okay? Um, Subject to some other issues that we we should discuss uh, in that uh, conducting transactions with a sanctioned person is a common basis for sanctions designation. Hmm. But defining the group as all users of Tornado Cash, would raise some significant uh, uh issues and problems, including the fact that that would mean that all property of anyone who has used tornado cache would be blocked and and I think it's it's pretty clear that that's not how OFAC understands the the scope of its order
0: so if all users of tornado cache can't be designated, tornado cache itself has to be designated, which was what was done here but if tornado cache is open source software that is not a group of a group or entity of any sort would that wouldn't that raise problems with this designation theoretically
1: it it could right because the executive order authorizes blocking property of persons who are identified as meeting criteria and so on the one hand um that's almost certainly broad enough to cover an informal group of persons operating a uh, mixer or a blender service. So it, it's easy to see how there could be, without there being a formal LLC or co- company or entity, a group of people operating a blender who are a cognizable person whose property can be blocked. And another example of that would be, very frequently, the hacker groups themselves have been SDN designated. And, you know, Evil Corp, for example, is one of them. And, and there is no Evil Corp company that is registered under the laws of some jurisdiction. It's, in essence, a gang. But there has to be some identifiable person or group of people. And so, it, if in fact it is the case that there is purely an inanimate item of software which belongs to no one and is controlled by no one and is the property of no one, then I think that would be a really challenging fact pattern that tests the boundaries and limits of OFAC's designation authority under the current orders.
0: So, on that front, there is unsurprisingly, a lawsuit that was filed yesterday against the government. It is funded by Coinbase, which is um, the largest uh, crypto exchange in in the United States. Um, And it's being funded on behalf of several Tornado Cash users that have, have Ethereum stuck in Tornado Cash that they are scared to withdraw for fear of running afoul of the sanctions. Regime. So, I'm going to give a quick rundown of this lawsuit, Jonathan, so that we can uh, hear your thoughts on it. So, okay. so these Tornado Cash users allegedly were engaged entirely in lawful behavior. They wanted privacy for their transactions because, like the example I gave earlier, they have public presence, they have concerns about hacking, and and so they want anonymity for. Donations to social causes and other sorts of transfers like, like that. And OFAC's designation of Tornado Cash allegedly prevents these users from lawfully withdrawing their funds. Notably, the complaint alleges that since Tornado Cash is an open source self executing code, it can't be shut down. Though. There's no one controlling it that can shut, shut it down. So it's still operational. So US persons with public Ethereum addresses, for example, Jonathan, if you had a public address in your Twitter bio, you could someone could send you Ethereum through Tornado Cash without you even wanting it. If you could be an unsolicited recipient of uh, funds from Tornado Cash since it's the, the, the code is still running. But backing up, the lawsuit alleges that Tornado Cash isn't property, as we discussed before, or a person under IEPA And therefore the designation is not in accordance with law. There's also constitutional arguments in this lawsuit. There's a claim that this designation violates the First Amendment by providing, because tornado cash provides privacy and allows its users to engage in important valuable speech such as donations to social causes. Finally, the lawsuit makes a Fifth Amendment argument that depriving the plaintiffs of their cryptocurrency without due process of law amounts to sort of an unconstitutional taking. So this group of plaintiffs funded again by Coinbase is seeking a declaratory judgment holding, among other things, that the designation of tornado cash is null and void and has no force and effect. So Jonathan, you've read this complaint and it was just filed. It's gonna be watched by the crypto community very closely. What are your initial thoughts?
1: Well, I think it's a, you know, it's a very, it's a very interesting uh, lawsuit and, um, you know, at at the root of of the dispute, I think it seems to be a factual uh, disagreement in that the OFAC uh, designation announcement uh, states Tornado Cash is an entity. It is framed and depicted by the government very clearly as an entity or group that operates this service whose property is blocked. Uh, but uh, you know the lawsuit uh, says well just just factually speaking that's incorrect uh, the the service consists purely of according to the complaint open source software uh, embedded on the uh, on the blockchain which is not uh, modifiable or controllable by anyone and therefore it is not a person whose property can be blocked it's not capable of having property or interest in property. It is not a person. It is not an entity. It doesn't meet uh, any of the traditional parameters for list-based designation. Um, and so consequently, the lawsuit says that the designation is uh, unlawful under AIPA because uh, according to the complaint, AIPA does not permit the designation of an item of software. So that's really the the core of the uh, Statutory Administrative Procedure Act uh, claim.
0: So it sounds um, like your initial view is that a lot of this lawsuit is going to hinge on how that factual dispute of what tornado cash is, is determined.
1: Yes, and and, and here, you know, the government's uh, attempting to regulate, a, you know, a new technology in an emerging area. And so it, it can sometimes be that um, that there's not, a complete empirical understanding of of what something is um and that certainly is the argument the complaint is making that there is no such person as tornado cash capable of being sanctioned and the uh so you know count one points out that AIPA allows the regulation of activities involving property in which any foreign country or national thereof has any interest um or with respect to any property subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. Uh, so the the argument is that that those criteria are not met. Uh, the complaint also notes, although I would say somewhat glancingly, that the cybersecurity executive orders authorize designation of persons and the blocking of their property, and not some broader set of regulations. Um, the complaint, as you know, it also makes First and Fifth Amendment uh, claims. But I think the focus here really should probably principally
0: be on the, the statutory claim. So if, if in fact, the, what is alleged in the complaint about what Tornado Cash is, is true, i.e. that it is a open source software code, smart it, it's run by smart wallets that take control of the crypto that no one controls, there's no entity behind it, no group, no people, it's just a public piece of software on the blockchain. If that is, in fact, true, is there something that the government could do from a sanctions perspective to nevertheless designate the software?
1: I think that's an interesting question, and of course, this is all disputed and at the cutting edge of sanctions authorities. Um, But I think the potential scope of the government's powers under AIPA is, is greater than the scope under the, the current cybersecurity executive orders that are the basis for this designation. In that, those executive orders authorize, as noted, the designation of persons and the blocking of their property. But historically, AIPA has had other and broader applications. Uh, for example, IEPA can be used, and historically sometimes has been used, as the basis for countrywide embargoes. Uh, so, the the, the current uh, U.S. embargo against Syria, which prohibits substantially all economic transactions with Syria, subject to some exceptions, is a, a creature of IEPA. A Congress never passed a Syria embargo law. So, there, um, the executive branch is not merely designating persons and blocking their property. It's prohibiting a type or category of international economic transaction. And I think best understood, IEPA probably does permit the executive generally to do that. The other example of a non-blocking use of IEPA, of course, would be export controls, where uh, historically there sometimes was a specific congressional export control statute authorizing Commerce Department export controls. But at various points in time, those statutes lapsed. And so for 24 years, the whole commerce export control system was based on IEPA. And and of course, export controls don't block property. What they do is they say that um, uh, any any or transfer uh, outside the United States of particular controlled items is limited in particular, very complicated ways. So. Could the executive branch under IEPA prohibit Americans from using a particular, let's call it, software intermediary for international financial transactions? Well, IEPA is very broad. That could well be the case. Does this action fit within the ambit of list-based designation authority? I think that's a tougher question and depends really on what Tornado Cash is and and what OFAC's side of the story maybe is as they respond to the complaint
0: about the answer to that question. So speaking of that, what will the next step be in this lawsuit?
1: Uh well of course lit- litigation can take a, a number of, of of tracks and so that can't be predicted with certainty. There could be uh you know a resolution where uh the complaint is 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 resolved via some type of OFAC clarification or interim relief or something that could happen. Uh, if it's litigated, you know, uh, through to its conclusion, I think OFAC would typically move to dismiss, um, and uh, there'd be there'd be further motion practice. Conceivably, there might be discovery and summary judgment. Uh, it really depends on 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 how the briefing and argument play out. Um, and uh, it's also possible, ultimately, that we'll end up with a different and broader set of cybersecurity-related executive order authorities than the ones we currently have um in order to uh in order to address some of the very novel issues that this raises the complaint attempts to draw a distinction between tornado cache and one of the other blenders i mentioned blender io saying well some some of these mixers or blenders are entities right blender io the complaint says is a group but tornado cache it claims is not
0: mm-hmm. so we're still at the very beginning of this story and we're going to need to keep an eye on it to see where it goes
1: Absolutely. And I think it'll have, you know, really interesting implications for the, the application of sanctions authorities to some of these new technologies in, in crypto. Um, I don't think long term it would be viable to have a position where there there are no sanctions tools that can be deployed against automated crypto intermediaries. That, you know, as long as you set something up and put it on the blockchain and can't control it, well, now you're home free and it can't be sanctioned. because. Uh, there's going to be an ongoing desire to sanction particular crypto intermediaries that are shown to be, for example, in some cases, predominantly utilized by criminals uh, without tying that to any particular designation. So it can't be that it's going to be viable to just have an automated uh, blender out there that, you know, perhaps hypothetically serves mostly to launder drug proceeds or something and that there's little the government can do about it. But but how we get from here to there will probably involve continued dispute in the courts and continued regulatory developments.
0: Well, and would it need to be sanctions that prevents that? Couldn't, for example, the legislature pass a law saying no U.S. person shall design or use a cryptocurrency blender, for example?
1: Yes, or you could, in principle, right, if if if, if politics were, were working maybe more smoothly than it is, have a new uh, thought through from the ground up, uh, uh, crypto financial regulatory architecture enacted by Congress, which you know answers a number of questions, including how do you how do you provide protections for legitimate financial privacy expectations without providing havens for uh, you know money laundering and crime? How do you how do you create a financial architecture that that lets the government uh, you know catch uh, you know thieves and crooks uh, but doesn't Expose your financial details to the world to
0: say. It's certainly an ambitious, uh, ambitious goal you set out there. Jonathan, I look forward to us talking more as this lawsuit progresses and we see where it goes.
1: Absolutely. I would say watch the space for sure. And, and uh, there may even be another another episode to record on this topic as uh, as the tornado cash case moves forward.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Jonathan. This is a betters verdict and designated crossover episode. You can always reach us at Herbert Smith Freehills. I'm Stephen Jacobs, and that was Jonathan Cross. Jonathan, thank you.
1: Thank you.